0: to Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. If you did not bring a Bible with you, there's Bibles around in the seats in front of you, underneath the seats in front of you. You can take one of those out and use that if you didn't bring one. So Isaiah chapter 59. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, everyone that's uh, up front here uh, sharing with us this morning. And uh, just a reminder as well, next week... After the service, we'll have a special uh, congregational meeting that'll last probably about four and a half seconds. And uh, what we have to do is we're, we're changing Daniel's title from ministry assistant to associate pastor. And uh, that requires, according to our bylaws, uh, a, an official vote to do that. So uh, we will do that afterwards. It's just a simple majority type of vote that will happen the elders have already like yeah this is our guy not that that's surprising to anyone after 4 years um, so anyway so that will be happening next week after the service so if you're a member you, know, you can hang out for that and we've got little ballots that we'll do and it'll like I said be a pretty pretty quick time and uh, that's what's going on there Isaiah 59 Jesus said these words It is not the healthy who needs a doctor but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Jesus, the ultimate physician, the physician of our soul is incredible, isn't he? But just like here with the doctors that are around us today, if a person doesn't seek treatment, more than likely that's because they don't think they need it. They don't think they need it. And if I can just be honest with everyone here today, no one thinks that they need Jesus as healer on their own power in their own strength. Because quite honestly, we have a very high opinion of ourselves and our morality in, in life. And we can say that that's something that's, you know, new and, and on full display now. It's amazing how many people think that they're totally cool in life and don't need God and, and all of that. But the truth is, is that that's known, uh, the sinfulness of our World, the sinfulness of who we are is known as our depravity, and the depravity of the human race um, is unfolded for us in this chapter uh, the sinfulness of the human race is is really unfathomable it's pervasive it's universal it's radical and in the world that we live in now, where it used to take a few days or weeks even to kind of get the news out to what some things are going on in the world or whatever, I mean now it's you know it's on live all the time you know it's it's on twitter it's on TikTok, it's on whatever, and what we see is that the evil that's out there is just amplified because we instantaneously see all of it. So this is universal, it's radical, and actually it's a consistent message all through Scripture. Now some passages in the Bible make this radical depravity that we all have to deal with clearer than others, but perhaps, dare I say, the clearest, and one of them is in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. And the Apostle Paul just kind of levels it on everyone. He just kind of takes, in one of my phrases, I'm a baseball guy, I love baseball, so if you're ever in a meeting with me and you hear me say this, you're not going to be surprised, but he kind of just takes the bat out and swings it at everyone. All right, so that's his little Scottism, and so just be aware of that, but that's really what he does. He levels the the playing field, and he just slams the bat against every single one of us and calls it the pride that's out there, and uh, just the beat of kind of a mournful drum, the drum beat of phrase after phrase after phrase of how much we need a Savior because of how bad we really are. And he says these words. There's no one righteous. Some of you may remember these words. There's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. No one who seeks God. Now, many people find that offensive. That's like, Paul, I seek God. I seek Him. And he would look you right back in the eyes and say, in, in your natural sinful self, you can't. Because he says you're dead in your sin. And last time I checked, if you're dead, you're not looking. And, and it, it all makes sense. There is no one who does good, not even one. And, and our world today and the generations before and the generations that come after us would argue, well, no, no, some people do good. Some people do good. Well, Paul, to support his thesis, did not turn to AI to write the paper for him. Some of you don't get that. That's all right. Paul turned to Isaiah 59 and used that as the foundation of what he says in Romans 3. You hear some familiar themes. If you go later this week, if you go back into Romans 3 and kind of reread that, you're going to see a lot of Isaiah 59 in there. And that's just the way it works with this. Isaiah stood at the moment that Isaiah was proclaiming God's Word. He stood as the mouthpiece of God to a radically depraved human world. And what Paul does is he takes parts of Isaiah 59 and some of the Psalms when he writes these words in Romans 3, 13 through 17. And what I'm sharing with you today, and hang with me on this, as we walk through this piece by piece, this, this shows us actually what Paul says there. You would sit there and go, well, that totally makes sense today if you just look around. Zip back 26 centuries from today and that's when Isaiah was saying what we're going to look at and it all stands really on two pillars and the reason that I believe that the Bible is always relevant no matter what age you're in really there's two pillars that that make that possible one is the unchangeable nature of God himself God never changes so if anyone says well, the Bible may have been relevant then. Has God changed since then? No. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the God of the Bible is the God of today, and He's the God of tomorrow, and He's the God of a thousand ages forward if He tarries and does not return. Amen. So this God's word stands on that pillar. I am God. There is no other. My word does not change. It it doesn't become irrelevant. You know what the other pillar is? I'm a sinner. The second pillar of the unchangeable gospel, the unchangeable understanding of the Bible, is the unchangeable nature of the human race. Name one generation... You can come up to me afterwards if you really think you've got the answer, which you won't. But name one generation, just one, that has not had to deal with sin. All right, we'll move to the next thought because we all know that's true. We all know it's true. The depravity of the human race is the same now as it was in Isaiah's day. It's amplified in many different ways now because we instantaneously, like I said earlier, see it in all of its ugliness. And it's ramped up and it's depraved. And what people do now is actually many times the same things that happened then. Um, We just were amazed by how ugly it all is. But the truth is, is we need to change the, the wording from we to me. We all struggle with sin, and I, me, I struggle with sin. Scott deals with wickedness. You deal with that as well. And the Bible addresses universally this understanding of God never changes and neither does man, truthfully, in, its, in his sin. So it's just as fresh and raw now as it was 26 centuries ago. And so when we walk through this today, you're going to go, if you haven't done this already because obviously we're marching through this week by week and man we're turning the last corner and we're heading for the home stretch in Isaiah and we've been doing this for a year and a half and it's like hold it we're almost there and some of you read ahead and if you've read any part of this you go wow this sounds like today Jesus is the great physician. He is the only one that can cure us. Isaiah is sharing with us the dark and painful diagnosis of the cancerous tumor of sin in this chapter. And we need to listen. We need to listen to the brutally honest evaluation of the skillful surgeon who is telling us simply that the sin is terminal. You cannot fix yourself to get out of this by yourself. Only Christ can cure this tumor of sin. And this chapter points to Christ as clearly as possible. But a lot of people shrink back from hearing these types of things. I guarantee you, I could show you after the service... If, if you wanted to, anytime, I can show you a bunch of different church consulting websites that will tell you never, ever talk about sin in your church if you want it to grow. I'm like, well, if you want it to grow sinful tumors? But I mean seriously, that's 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 the word out there on the street. You know, if you want your church to grow, just talk about love. Well, yeah, I'm gonna talk about love all the time because real love tells people how to live. And how to live forever. And what the cure is for the mess that we see around us in our own lives, in our families, in our workplace. Everywhere. But people shrink back from it. They shrug. They deny. They evade evade the the diagnosis. And all who do so perish. But if like Isaiah does, I think in this chapter specifically, if we humble ourselves and seek the salvation that God alone can give, we're going to be healed. And so first we see in verses 1 through 8, yes, that was a 15-minute intro to the sermon. In verses 1 through 8, you see the the accusation that, that God lays down here. Verse 1, Behold, the hand of Yahweh is not so short that it cannot save, nor is His ear so dull That it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken a lie. Your tongue mutters unrighteousness. No one calls in righteousness righteousness, and no one seeks justice and truth. Man, this next phrase, does this sound like today? They trust in confusion. They trust in confusion and speak worthlessness. You know what the modern phrase for that is now? Word salad. You just speak in circles. Nothing. Nothing true. They conceive trouble, give birth to wickedness. They break open vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. Who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a snake breaks forth. Their webs will not become a garment, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of wickedness, and a deed of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are quick to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of wickedness. Devastation and destruction are in their highways. They do not know the way of peace, and there is no justice in their tracks. They have made their paths crooked, who treads on them, Does not know peace. Few things we obviously see in this. God is deeply offended by our sins. And it creates an infinite gap, right? It creates this gulf between us and God. Now, for centuries, people have used this image of this gap between us and God, to share the good news of Christ. This is where this comes from. If any of you have ever heard of something called the bridge, the version of the bridge evangelism tool, where you, where you draw out the idea of salvation it comes from this. So if you've ever wondered where that comes from, it comes from this because this gap is so wide. Well, we here living in the western United States, almost all of us have probably ventured over three and a half, four hours and have taken a look at the Grand Canyon. It is in a gigantic hole in the ground. It has a huge gap in it, and you'll go to a restaurant with someone, and you'll go share with people just what's going on in life, and maybe they do, after a while, come to a point where they're like, you know, I just feel like my life means nothing, everything's a mess, I feel yucky inside, and you start to explain sin a little bit to them, and they go, whoa, 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 that's, that's, that's me. And they, they'll say, Man, and I feel like God is like, a, if they believe in God yet or anything, I feel like God's a million miles away. It is time to draw the bridge illustration. And you talk to them about the Grand Canyon. You talk about the simple verse here. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And you draw a little stick figure because that's as artistic as Scott Julian gets, a little stick figure on one side of the Grand Canyon, and you draw or just write the word God on the other side. Any of you know this illustration? Yep. Yep. And, and, and then what do we try to do? We, we try to be evil Knievel, if you're old enough to remember that, and try to shoot yourself over this canyon. It wasn't Grand Canyon he went over, but it was King's Canyon, but it's a different story. Still, he didn't make it and he blew up and about killed himself. And we try everything to get over to the other side, ourselves. We try to build the bridge over to God by being a better person, by you know living uh, away or by, by doing all these different types of things where but it 's still me in charge, and everywhere in the Bible cons- consistently says, "You can't do this on your own. you cannot make yourself like God you can't make yourself holy you're." you're You've sinned still. And very simply, after time, people go, yeah, you know, I've tried everything and I still feel like life doesn't have purpose. I, don't, and I just don't understand. And it's like, well, there's only one thing that covers the gap. The only bridge that's ever been built that's big enough and solid enough, and will never fail, and that is Christ and the work on the cross. And you draw that cross in there and make sure it goes from side to side because if there's gaps, that doesn't make sense. And you sit there, and and, and you may sit there and go, well, that's way too simplistic. Well, read Romans 3, and Paul makes it very simple what the answer is. Look at Isaiah 59 here, and it's not hard to understand what the answer is. And truthfully, one other way to acknowledge this as we see in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, very early on in this book, is that this is not just a, really a vertical gap, really what we really need to be understanding is that it's a horizontal jump that can't be made. When, when Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And so, really, no matter what direction, horizontal or vertical or whatever, you can't get to God without Christ. And this is not a superficial issue. This is the Issue. It's deep and it's full and it's pervasive. It's sin. And at the beginning of these verses, he goes directly, interestingly, if you take a look while I'm saying this, take a look at these verses, verses one through eight there, and you're going to see it moves us in the second person. It says, Your hands, your fingers, your lips. And then it broadens out. No one calls, no one pleads. They speak lies. They see evil so it's it's me and we it's everyone sin is so deep and it's so personal it's me and it's individual but it's so deep and it's so ingrained in all of us that it's we it's universal and it goes on and you read that there the wispy you gotta just picture the word picture is incredible the wispy cobwebs of self-righteousness are going to get blown away on Judgment Day. You know, Romans 3.20, For by works of the law shall no human be justified in God's sight. It's impossible. So I'm going to stop right here. Little application moment. These verses need to act like a mirror in our lives for all of us. James says that his word is like a mirror. We need to look at ourselves and see what these words are saying to, you, to us. Paul chose to use Isaiah's words in this chapter and apply them universally to the entire human race By saying, and what shall we conclude then? So that's why I'm saying stop and apply, because that's what Paul did. Stop and apply. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that the Jewish people and the Gentiles alike are all under sin. We are all the same, everyone. The world keeps trying to separate us into different groups, right? We all are one in sin. And that's what Paul's saying, get rid, stop thinking about the groups. We're one. We're either one in sin or we're one in Christ. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God, all have turned aside, they together become worthless, there is no one who does good, not even one. That's you, that's me, that's us, we're talking about one, all of us. pretty clear. And then it moves to a moment of confession then with Isaiah. In verse 9, therefore, there's that transition. Like, "Here here is what God is saying about all that we've done wrong. And I think if we do stop and we do take a look and if we are honest, we are all in that camp. Therefore, Justice is far from us. There's that gap again. And righteousness does not overtake us. Man, read these words in in the light of the word pictures that are going to happen right now. We hope for light, but behold darkness, for brightness, but we walk in thick darkness. We grope along the wall like blind men. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at midday as in the twilight. Among those who are vigorous, we are like dead men. All of us growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it's far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. And he's used capitalized, so he's talking to God. And our sins answered against us. For our transgressions are with us. And we know our iniquities. See, this is a confession. We know it, we know our iniquities transgressing and denying Yahweh and turning back from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving in and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away for truth has stumbled in the street. And righteousness cannot enter. So it is that truth is missing. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself plunder. Well, this is a text at this point that has turned to a confession of humility saying, Yeah, we are weak, we are broken, we are sinful. It turns inward and and humble, and Isaiah, the prophet, speaking for actually all of redeemed among Israel at that time, he's doing a group confession. You know, all of us who are redeemed. It's like it's like if I got here and if, if if God's standing right here in front of us, which we know. Okay, we, we deal with the theological problems with that in a minute. But it'd be like me saying. Okay, this is, our, this is our church. God, we, we humbly bow before you. We, the redeemed, get that we are wicked. And that's, that's the picture of what Isaiah is doing there. There's, if you notice, there's no effort to deflect the accusation of the verses before, right? So it's not like, well, you know, I agree with two and four, but three and on, I, you know, I don't really think I'm guilty of that much. No. It's the whole thing. Not one ounce of holding back any of that and and, and jesus in his parables that are so powerful shared a parable that that really explains the heart of what this is like in going before god in this this type of confession in luke chapter 18 and some of you may know this parable But let me remind you, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He's acknowledging... What, did you catch what he's doing there? He's acknowledging the gap. And he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Did he try to explain any of it away? Nope. Did he try to give you know, there's, there's four things that I'm exempted from. Jesus said, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And, and really, we see the heart of that in this confession that Isaiah shares to God on behalf of the redeemed. And and we hear that just in the beginning of of verse 9 there where he says, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We we hope for light, but behold darkness for brightness, but we walk in thick darkness. 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11. The one who says, He is in the light and yet hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness blinded his eyes. We hope for light, but behold darkness in Isaiah for brightness, but we walk in thick darkness. 1 John 2 is talking about those who say they are believers in the context within churches. But you get the idea there, that that's what darkness does. We've got to confess that. And Isaiah keeps moving this thought along in verses 15 through 18 then, where, where you really see that, okay, there's got to be some sort of intervention, there is this evil, there is this convention, uh, the, you know, uh, confession, and then who intervenes? Verse 15, so it is that truth is missing and he who turns aside from evil makes himself plunder. Second half of verse 15, here we go. Then, so here's your transition again. Then Yahweh saw, and it was evil in his eyes that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man. And he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle according to what they deserve so he will pay in full. Hmm, who's that talking about? It's Christ. He paid for our sin. Wrath to his adversaries, what is deserved to his enemies to the coastlands he will pay what they deserve isaiah's saying some things here that could be taken wrong first of all when you look at the phrase then yahweh saw and it was evil in his eyes and that there was no justice and he saw that there was no man and he was astonished you could take that like god was surprised by this that that's not the point the point's actually twofold One, God is not indifferent to wrong. He's actually incensed by evil. But two, we cannot rescue ourselves. God saw then, and the right understanding of this is that there was no man that could save. No, not one, not me, not you, not anyone. Only God can save us. And how can he do that? And he goes on. I love this picture. I know I'm a guy, and I, I love, I love the, the picture of the, the strong warrior, and that's God. But God is the strong warrior. Isn't it interesting that our culture today wants to get rid of the strong warrior? We're a bunch of wimpy people. <laughs> uh, give, give, give me this. If you're newer to our church, another one of my little things that's a little thing that I will always tell you is that angels were not wimpy little characters. Yeah, you, didn't want to, you don't want to mess with angels. You don't know when they're around all the time. But when they come as a messenger and it's time to do some business, look anywhere in Scripture. They were not people that we were, oh, wow, look it's an angel. It's like, ah! They're powerful. They're warriors. God, the ultimate warrior in his arsenal, the clothing is a metaphor for how God displays himself. The final day is coming. If you were here on Thursday night, we were talking about the day of God, the final day of the Lord. There's some like 19 times of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. There's four in the New Testament. And the last one in the New Testament is when Jesus shows up and it is time for it to be done. And every, every problem, every sin will be settled with perfect justice from the warrior God, from Jesus who at that point has a sword and it's, it's time. New heaven, new earth, everything's annihilated before that. There'll be no hiding place. That's what the last phrase there in verse 18 says, to the coastlands. That means, you know, the far remote places in that language. And so just once again, I'm going to pause for a little application. Don't, don't give up hope. Don't, don't give in to this present age. This, this present evil that's in front of us, that's been in front of every generation since the fall of man, this present age is weak. It's getting old. It will pass away. And you may be sitting there and looking at me and go, but it doesn't feel like it's passing away. It actually feels like it's getting stronger and stronger every day. The Bible says there'll be times like that, right? Persecution's gonna rise. It's gonna rise. It's gonna rise. But what happens? It goes away. And there's certain times even within our world where things that you would have never thought could happen do happen, and you know that it's okay. I I think of the liberation of Paris in 1944. Who would have thought four years earlier that the Nazi occupation of that area would collapse in four years with them killing millions and millions of Jewish people and Christians and, and a bunch of people. But the evil collapsed, didn't it? And in the streets, there were celebrating And it's a very dim picture of what it will be like in the future. I think of just a few months ago. In horrific manner of some 50 years almost, the United States said yes to murdering babies that weren't born yet. And then all of a sudden there's this day where they're like, no, that's not legal anymore. And you go, wow, well, I don't know if I ever saw that day come. And there's still battles going on, right, with that. But you just go, that's amazing. And that's a very dim victory compared to what's coming. And, and the reason I share those is verses 19 through 21 show you the result of what happens with God the warrior. It's worldwide. It's it's eternal salvation for those that, that confess and repent. Verse 19, So they will fear the name of Yahweh from the west. And his glory from the rising of the sun, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of Yahweh makes flee. A redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression. And Jacob declares Yahweh As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahweh. My spirit which is upon you, and my words which I have put in your mouth shall not depart from your mouth, nor from the mouth of your seed, nor from the mouth of your seed's seed, says Yahweh, for now and forever. You know, the progress of the gospel can seem slow. But the present is not the measure of the future. Amen? The glory of the Lord will rise over the earth like a flash flood, spurred on by the Holy Spirit, sweeping the opposition away, dissolving hostility into reverence, and the final victory of the Redeemer. Verse 20, a Redeemer will come to Zion. In ancient Israel, that Redeemer, who was also known as a kinsman Redeemer, was a member of the family who shouldered a relative's need as if it was his own. For example, if a person incurred so much debt that he became a slave, a redeemer would buy back their freedom in Leviticus 25 and other pictures of that. That is actually an Old Testament picture of what was to come in Christ. Christ is our redeemer. He has shouldered our need. He has paid the price for our slavery and sin. And the measure of the commitment to that is the covenant that we see in verse 21. My spirit, which is upon you, and my words, which I have put in your mouth, shall not depart from your mouth. Holy Spirit will not depart. You're sealed, you're in, you're with Him forever. He's your warrior, he's your king, he's your redeemer. So first, as we wrap this up, I think there's some things we need to do. Acknowledge your sins in detail, like we see here. Go through them, look at them, look at the part of the violence and hand-stained-with-blood part in your life and realize you don't have to commit murder to have your heart be that of a murderer. Jesus said that. You don't have to commit adultery to have the heart of an adulterer. Jesus talked about looking at the heart. And we realize these verses are talking about us Not everyone else, but us. Second, if you are already a believer, a Christian, you need to sit back and realize how much you've been forgiven of. This should be like the number one Thanksgiving thing in all of our prayers every single time we pray. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving my sins. Ironically, mucking around in verses 1 through 8 as a Christian makes you happy. That's the weird part of it. It has the power to deliver you from complaining about things that are going on in your life, because you have been forgiven much. So if you're a Christian and you've already found all of this out about forgiveness and the riches in this, then it should cause us to esteem Jesus more higher than we've ever done before. When Isaiah says, "Lo, I, Man, I, I look up and he's high and exalted. We as, as Christians should be looking up and going, you are so high and you are so exalted and you cover that gap. You are the only one that can save. Hallelujah. Jesus took the sins. Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus did not ignore our sins. His ear is not too deaf and his eyes not too blind to see and know exactly what was going on in our lives. He saves us. And those of you today who are here who have may not accepted Christ yet, this is a perfect day to acknowledge sin, to confess that yeah, verses 1 through 8 are right in my life. Humbly bow before Christ and accept Him. Believe in Him. Believe that He is Lord and Savior. Repent and find Jesus as your Redeemer. Trust in Him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you